1: In this special episode of On The Record Online, we're going to take you inside the new media PR boot camp that I taught in Singapore just recently. Virgin Atlantic actually caught a lot of flack for their podcast, uh, but they made a podcast about travel destinations to which they fly. And uh, the reason they caught a lot of flack is because of the authenticity factor. Rather than uh, find people from those destinations who really would know the ins and outs of where to go and where to eat and where to shop and where to stay and where to dine, um, what they did was they hired an actor. And uh, like for the, for the New York one, they had a, uh, an actor doing a Brooklyn accent, talking about where to get pizza. And it, it felt canned, it felt scripted, and so the backlash was, was, was quite negative. And thank you for joining us for another episode of On the Record Online. In this special episode, you're going to hear an excerpt from the New Media PR Boot Camp uh, that I've been teaching uh, both in the U.S. and abroad. This particular excerpt is from a New Media PR Boot Camp, which is a day-long session uh, that I taught in Singapore uh, at the invitation of the Singaporean government for a number of non-governmental organizations, including the Housing Administration, the Energy Department, uh, local prison service. There were also uh, media representatives there from uh, the newspaper, what have you, and uh, some private sector as well. Uh, This excerpt is the portion of the day in which we discussed podcasting case studies. And I thought you might like to hear it. Um, We cover a number of different uh, case studies concerning podcasts that uh, have been produced either by Schwartzman and Associates or uh, by iPressroom or in one case, a collaboration between the two. And I think you'll find them interesting. So it's a little different than what we usually do. If this is your first time this We usually do an interview With a journalist from the mainstream media Um, And if you want to go back through Some of the old episodes, we've done Walt Mossberg Ken Auletta, Nikki Fink um, uh, René San Miguel from CNN, one, a number of really, um, uh, well, high-profile uh, journalists. So if you want to sort of figure out what makes them tick, how they decide what to cover uh, from a media relations standpoint or just from a, uh, well, a, a news interest standpoint, uh, you can go back and yeah, obviously download any of those at will. Um, but today we're we're going to break from that tradition and we are going to play an excerpt from the uh, New Media PR Boot Camp. Now, if you're interested in the New Media PR Boot Camp, which a lot of organizations are because we're getting booked – quite heavily now to go in and actually teach these one-day programs, in some cases even two-day programs, where we basically help to accelerate uh, the understanding and appreciation and respect for new media and its integration into public relations and marketing uh, within the organization. So I hope you find it interesting. Um, You know, the one other thing, uh, if, if you don't know who I am, i I'd like to introduce myself. My name is Eric Schwartzman, and I am the founder and chairman uh, of a company called iPressroom. And uh, We have uh, a set of uh, tools and services, new media tools and services uh, that are available online, uh, which are integrated into one powerful dashboard, and you can use those uh, tools to integrate new media into a, a campaign. And uh, those are available at – you can find out more about that at iPressroom.com forward slash visible. I I am also managing director and uh, on a day-to-day basis run a PR firm called Schwarzman & Associates, uh, which represents uh, clients uh, in entertainment, media, and technology, corporate clients for the most part, and um, – While some of the clients uh, that are represented by the agency use the iPressroom platform, iPressroom, uh, which I'm only involved with at the board level, represents a number of clients that uh, Schwarzman PR has nothing to do with that are represented by other agencies. Actually, in many cases, there are actually PR firms that use the iPressroom platform uh, as a standalone tool to integrate – podcasting and blogging and email marketing and search engine optimization into their uh, PR campaigns for their clients. Uh, So that's the relationship between the two companies. I just want to be transparent on that. Um, Let's get on with the case studies from the New Media PR Boot Camp in Singapore after this. Don't be left behind. Get the latest online
0: PR tools and services from my press room. Powerful, easy to use, available on demand. Extend your sphere of influence online with iPressroom. Tools for online media centers, virtual private press rooms, RSS news feeds, podcasts and more at www.ipressroom.com. iPressroom, always on even when you're off.
1: So let's talk about who's podcasting and what they're doing with their podcasts. Um So Disneyland is podcasting. They're doing a podcast uh, to take listeners who love Disney and the Disney brand inside the uh, Disneyland Resort uh, to learn more about what's going on there. Um, ECAST is a company that's podcasting, and I'll actually play you a piece of their podcast. Jupiter Research is an industry analyst group. I mentioned some industry analysts are using podcasts to build an audience for premium content. And that's exactly what they're doing. They're doing podcasts about new reports that are available. Uh, The reports cost thousands of dollars. And so uh, they're using the podcast to get people interested in actually purchasing that data. Uh, IBM uh, is podcasting. Uh, As we said before, they're doing this podcast called IBM and the Future of blank. And for each episode uh, of the podcast, they talk about IBM's involvement in a vertical industry. So, IBM and the future of work, the human resource industry. IBM and the future of healthcare, the healthcare industry. IBM and the future of TV, the broadcast industry. Interestingly enough, the IBM podcast is not produced by the PR group or the marketing group, it's produced by the IR group, by the investor relations group. Now, most of you probably remember. Um, IBM sold off their, uh, har- their hardware manufacturing business to Lenovo, uh, I think more than a year ago. So they're in the consulting business now. So their assets go home at night. So in order for them to build a market for their stock, stimulate volume and drive valuation, they need to um, suggest the forward-looking prospects for the company and the integral role that IBM plays in the development of other industries. So what they're doing is this podcast called IBM and the Future Of, and uh, each time what they do is they get a subject matter expert uh, from their organization and give that person the opportunity to share their brand expertise with the listenership. Now, uh, I had a chance to speak with the gentleman at IBM who produces the podcast, and I asked him what his objective was. And he said, our objective for the podcast is to let Wall Street know what we're doing so that when they report on our stock, they have an understanding of our, forward, our forward-looking prospects. So rather than be concerned about the sheer number of listeners, they're concerned about the, the various listeners that they have who are analysts, and they're measuring the effectiveness of the podcast by the number of mentions and references to the podcast uh, that are made in those analysts reports so IBM in the future of is measured not by the number of listeners but by whether or not the listeners are analysts and whether or not those analysts are mentioning the podcast in their report Simon says Simon and Schuster is uh, Viacom Corporation's publishing arm. And they do a weekly podcast uh, that features a new book release and features a author talking about their new book. Now, book publicity is a industry unto itself. And typically, the way that it works is when there's a new book to be released, the author will go on a media tour. The author will come to New York. And if the author is in demand, and uh, well-known, and the book is a well-received title, that author will go from uh, outlet to outlet, from from TV show to TV show, from reporter to reporter, in a matter of weeks or days, and give multiple interviews over that period of time. Well, as long as they've already got the person there, and as long as the person's already making the rounds, why not do an interview uh, with the uh, person from Corporate Communications at Simon & Schuster and offer that as a podcast as well? And that's exactly what Simon and that's exactly what Simon says is. Simon says is a podcast featuring a new book release and an author talking about that book release. Uh, Virgin Atlantic actually caught a lot of flack for their podcast, uh, but they made a podcast about travel destinations to which they fly. And uh, the reason they caught a lot of flack is because of the authenticity factor, rather than uh, find people from those destinations who really would know the ins and outs of where to go and where to eat and where to shop and where to stay and where to dine. Um, what they did was they hired an actor. And uh, like for the, for the New York one, they had a, uh, an actor doing a Brooklyn accent talking about where to get pizza. And it, it felt canned. It felt scripted. And so the backlash was, was, was quite negative. Purina. Uh, Purina does a podcast uh, called the Pet Lovers Podcast. It's not a podcast about pet food. If it was, no one would listen. Rather, it's a podcast of two veterinarians talking about how to care for pets. So they've created this program that would appeal to pet lovers without soapboxing pet food. Because if you made a show about pet food, nobody would listen to it. Um, TV Guide. Really, this is, a, this is a tough podcast, and we'll see whether or not they uh, are able to be successful with it. They're trying to do a podcast to build audiences for tune-in television. Now, as you can imagine, since podcasts are available on demand, you never know when someone's going to listen to them. So it's quite often that you actually download the TV Guide podcast after that episode has already aired. Um, so, it's again, a bit of a challenge. Whirlpool. Whirlpool podcast. I mean you think about that, you think, my God, who would who would listen to that, right? A podcast about washing machines? No, it's not. It's a podcast called the Whirlpool American Family Podcast. And each week the podcast talks about issues facing families and decisions that those families have to make about school, about childcare, about Uh, extracurricular activities, about breastfeeding, about all the things that face a parent or the head of the household who would be responsible for making decisions that concern the family and it makes a lot of sense because whoever's making the decision about the direction of the family is probably also the person that's going to make a decision about which washing machine to buy when they go to the store. Uh, So uh, the American uh, uh, Family Podcast from Whirlpool is actually quite successful. So let's start with a case study here about the Disneyland podcast. Uh, The objective in this case was to extend the reach of the parks, Disneyland's 50th anniversary celebration to enthusiasts worldwide. One of the buzzwords that you may hear thrown around quite a bit in the uh, world of marketing and public relations nowadays is engagement. Level of engagement, depth of engagement, How can you engage your audiences? Well, there are a number of different ways to get news out about the Disneyland 50th anniversary celebration. But if there's someone who can't attend and they really want some depth of information about that event, what better way to to give them that information than through a podcast? And that's exactly what they did. They did what's called a a sound seeing tour of uh, of the 50th anniversary event. And uh, that's exactly what it was. It was a a podcaster uh, describing things that were happening in the park, doing one-on-one interviews with Michael Eisner and uh, other uh, celebrities that were there at the event. And it was so successful that they continued to do it even after the event. It's still available you can subscribe to it. If you are a a Disney fan, if you like Disney, this is a way to know what's going on uh, about Disney. And if you want to be the person who knows something about Disney that no one else knows, this is a way to really know about the inner workings of the park. Um, I thought it was interesting that they they said that the success was 64,000 downloads in the first five months. Doesn't seem like a lot, does it? But consider now, we talked about the anatomy of buzz, and we talked about creating a social phenomenon by targeting the influencers first. Well, Disney understands that the people who are going to go out of their way to subscribe to the podcast are the vocal proponents of the brand. These are the people that are going to talk to their friends about what they heard in the podcast, particularly since that information seems somewhat exclusive. It's not available through other means. Where where else could you hear an interview with the person responsible for for maintaining the Mickey costume? Or uh, an interview about uh, one of the uh, attractions there and how it's maintained? And so if if you're a real Disney buff, and you want to be the person that knows something about Disney that no one else does, this is the way you find out. And it generates word of mouth for Disney. So instead of just thinking 64,000 listeners, what you really have is an army of 64,000 evangelists who are going to spread word of mouth and promote your brand. This was the quote from Duncan Wardell, who was responsible for uh, getting this made. Uh, In a very short period of time, consumers that choose not to hear from a given brand will screen it out entirely. So. If you think about the fact that people are now searching for content on demand, they're no longer introduced to information by channel surfing or by turning the pages. It's only what they're searching for that they're getting. And if if they don't search for you, you don't exist. If they don't have a desire to get your content, then you're not going to be perceived by that audience. And we're talking about an audience 18 to 34 who is raised with this. I mean, this is not new to them. This is the way they're consuming information. This is a case study uh, for a podcast that uh, my firm produces for the Los Angeles Opera. The Los Angeles Opera is one of, uh, one of a few world-class operas. Uh, Placido Domenico is the creative director. And uh, the LA Opera realizes that uh, their subscribers are aging and dying off. And the only way that the opera is going to remain is if they can cultivate a new generation of opera aficionados. But how do they do that? In the world of public relations, if you were representing the Los Angeles Opera in Los Angeles uh, and you were dependent on the mainstream media to get the word out about what's going on, uh, you really would be very limited on the amount of attention you could get. Uh, There are a few big entertainment news magazine shows in the States. One is called Entertainment Tonight. Another is called Access Hollywood. Those are really the biggest entertainment news magazines uh, nationally that cover the business of news, uh, the business of entertainment. But they're interested in Lindsay Lohan and Paris Hilton. They're not interested in the opera because they have to appeal to a broad audience, right? Broadcast. In order for it to make sense, they have to play to the lowest common denominator. So they're going to go for those big-name stories, the release of Pirates of the Caribbean. They're not going to have an appetite for news about the L.A. opera because that's not the majority of the viewership. But at the same time, uh, the L.A. opera has interesting uh, productions going uh, on inside their walls and the number of creative talent that have something to say that may be interesting to a future generation of uh, opera attendees. So they decided, well, why should we rely on Entertainment Tonight or Access Hollywood to get our news out. Why don't we create our own Entertainment Tonight, our own Access Hollywood? And uh, we'll make it a podcast. It'll be an audio podcast. And we'll use it not just to cultivate tomorrow's generation of opera aficionados, but also to generate media buzz. And so um, that's, exa- that's what we did for them. So in addition to producing the podcast, uh, they've also been uh, uh, the podcast has been covered in the New York Times uh, repeatedly. The Los Angeles Times, when there's a new episode, they cover it. Uh, the uh, Howard Reporter has covered it. And I'd like to play for you a little clip. So you can get a feel for uh, what it's like.
0: Come and thank you for listening. This is Behind the Curtain at the L.A. Opera. In this four-part series, I'll be taking you backstage, behind the scenes, and into the minds of the company that is preparing for their debut of Jules Massenet's Manon, featuring one of
1: opera's hottest and most talented onstage duos. Hello, welcome, and thank So you get a feel for, for what the show's all about. And what it is is a one-on-one interview with the soprano who is the, uh, the diva at the head of the, uh, at the, head of the opera. Uh, we've done interviews with the choral director, with the conductor, with Placido Domenico. And one of the things that's so interesting about the podcast, the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion at the Music Center in Los Angeles, where the opera is performed, has a, the holds 5,000 people. For each podcast, we've been getting six times that in number of downloads and the way that it works is the podcast center is actually integrated with their website let me show you how that works so you see if you were to go to the uh, LA Opera uh, podcast to, uh, on their website you can purchase tickets right here so this is the idea again of using media generating your own media and using that media to drive purchases or to drive a transaction. If this media was on iTunes or was on Yahoo Podcasts, which it is as well, you wouldn't have that opportunity. So the benefit of making sure that the podcast and the media that you create is on your own site is that you can drive some sort of activity or some sort of transaction. And uh, you can see here, there's contact information for the uh, PR person at the opera. Here's a place where you can subscribe to the feed uh, with a raw feed. You can add it to iTunes with one click, add it to Yahoo with one click. We actually host this page for them, but it's integrated with their site. And when you go to their site and click on the podcast center, you would have no idea that you were on our servers. It's invisible to the end user. And again, as I said, it's important to integrate new media into whatever you're doing this is an email marketing campaign that we do to support the podcast so there are a number of different um, subscribers who have requested the uh, la opera newsletter and to all those people who get the la opera newsletter uh... we're sending out announcements about the uh... and this is this was the steamiest uh, opera of the season as you can see these are uh, uh, the young hot uh... Anya Natrebko and Rolando Villazon are, are known as the, the sexiest onstage duo in opera. So here you get a case study, the idea of creating a program, an original program to promote a specific offering, integrating that in the website, and then supporting it with something like email marketing. So that seems pretty straightforward, right? Mainstream entertainment pretty easy to do a podcast for that because they have something that people want entertainment but what about a business what about some sort of niche offering how do you create a podcast that might be interesting for a more complex subject this I think is a really good example of that this is another podcast that we produced for an organization called ecast and it doesn't get any more niche than this ecast is a company that has digital broadband jukeboxes. What they've done is they've taken conventional jukeboxes, and instead of having the CD or the records inside of it where you, you know choose the record and plays it, they've ripped that out, put a computer in there, and instead of being able to choose from a couple hundred songs, you can choose from hundreds of thousands of songs over the internet. And you operate these jukeboxes with a touchscreen monitor. They're regular jukeboxes in a, in a nightclub or a restaurant or a bar, like you would see. Uh, But instead of using buttons, you use a touchscreen monitor. And what they wanted to do, get this, they said, we want to sell advertising on our touchscreen monitors when they're not being used for song selection. How can we do that? That's a tough order, right? How would you possibly use new media to promote something like that? Well, there's a, a, a trade show in the U.S. called Ad Tech. And it's uh, held in Los Angeles, Chicago, New York every year. And it is about the business of advertising and technology, the intersection of the two. And they were going to exhibit at that trade show. They had a a booth, and they were going to have a display. And their salespeople would try to uh, pass out business cards and find leads to buy advertising space on these jukeboxes. Well, what we said to them is, well, why don't we do this? The reason a lot of the people come to these conferences is to hear the keynote speakers and to hear the big-name panelists at the different sessions. Why don't we contact the keynote speakers ourselves directly, we'll contact the panelists ourselves directly, and we'll interview them in your booth. We'll create a little newsroom in the booth, make it look like a, a news a news station, it'll be a happening, and uh, people will gather around, and we'll have an on-air sign. And, make a big deal out of it. And uh, we'll produce a dozen, maybe a dozen and a half shows over two days. And, uh, and that's exactly what we did. Uh, we, we went there. We, we, uh, we produced these shows. And uh, we, didn't talk about the, we didn't talk on the shows about jukeboxes. We didn't talk on the shows about ECAST. What we did was we interviewed these keynote speakers about the relevant issues facing a media buyer who's looking at and evaluating new media. And then, of course, we put an ad in there to promote Ecast. And I'd like to play for you a little clip.
2: You're listening to Digital Masters, where experts discuss how technology is changing the business of media. Digital Masters is brought to you by the ECAST national network of ad serving, digital downloading jukeboxes in thousands of restaurants and taverns nationwide. For more information, visit us at www.ecastinc.com.
1: Chris Oser, interactive reporter with Advertising Age about the future of online advertising.
2: I think it's a risk worth taking if you want to survive in the uh, marketing world because the consumer is in charge and that's
0: not going to turn back.
1: More from Digital Masters after this.
0: Music may soothe the savage beast but it also helps advertisers elicit a visceral emotional response. Now you can use the power of broadband to interact with a premium audience while they listen to their favorite songs. Leverage the only location-based broadband network powering thousands of touchscreen-controlled jukeboxes seen by an audience of 8 to 10 million likely consumers every month. Target a premium audience of elusive 21 to 34-year-old Metro Elites at the point of sale through the ECAST network of digital downloading jukeboxes. The ECAST location based broadband network serves nearly 8 million digital song performances and generates close to 2 million unique transactions monthly. ECAST, closing the gap between impressions and sales. For more information, visit us at www.ecastinc.com.
1: Chris Oser covers the interactive beat for Advertising Age magazine, a trade publication. So, you get the idea. So, if you want to listen to the interview with Chris Oser about who covers interactive advertising for Ad Age, and a lot of people do, uh, you have to hear the ad. And as you heard, the ad really tells you everything you need to know about the advertising opportunity on these digital jukeboxes. So, let's just look at some hard numbers on the results. Um, we recorded 15 episodes of the podcast at AdTech. AdTech was attended by 1,800 people. Uh, in the 12 months uh, after, the, after the event was over, the podcast was downloaded 17,000 times. So that's an extension of the reach by 600%. There's no way that you could interact with 17,000 people. And now they're whispering in 17,000 ears with this podcast. Um, granted, people are probably paying more attention to the interview with, with Chris Oser than they are with the adverti- than the ad, but they are being exposed to it. I put a graph together so you can see this visually. This, was, uh, this is uh, the, the downloads of the podcast over time. So you can see the event is here. And so, after the event, we shot up in May to about uh, looks like we just just showed a 4,000 downloads, and then tapering off with another little uh, peak here, and then peaking up again. Uh, that is 17,000 downloads over a 12-month period. You may again say 17,000—that's nothing. Well, how many people out there do you think there are who could actually buy advertising on a digital jukebox? Probably not even 17,000. So now what a great way to create a program to appeal to a niche audience. I think this is a really great example of using podcasting for niche casting. And I think that's the really great opportunity that podcasting affords. And here's another uh, sort of niche example that I'd like to give you because this is about building excitement leading up to an event. Um, trend, uh, Trend Micro is... Trend Micro is a billion dollar uh, provider of antivirus software. And um, they realized that uh, people who make decisions about antivirus software and security software uh, are interested in knowing more about the particulars behind various, various offerings. So, uh, so they decided to create a podcast to uh, get people more, not only more familiar with their brand, but to humanize their brand. So if you think about the perception you have of a brand, you know, if there's no human aspect to that brand, it can often be seen as sort of off-putting. And Microsoft's a great example of this. You know, they were for so long seen as an evil empire. And they've only recently started to add blogs and podcasts to show uh, and extend the voice of the people in the cubes who really care about their products as a way of humanizing the brand. And that's what uh, Trend Micro uh, is doing as well with this podcast that we produced for them. And I'll play you a clip of this as well.
0: Come and thank you for joining us. This is the Frontline. The Frontline podcast is brought to you by Trend Micro, a leader in antivirus, anti-spyware, and internet content security solutions. On the web at trendmicro.com. On this edition of the Frontline Podcast, we'll be talking to Malev Patel, Product Marketing Manager at Trend Micro.
1: And then it's an opportunity for the Product Marketing Manager, not necessarily just to talk about their corporate marketing messages, but to talk in a human voice about their brand, about what they're doing, about their various products, about what's really good about those products. Um, Results? The Trend Micro podcast um, uh, made available across more than half a dozen microsites, um, yet syndicated into three different feeds. So there's actually a strategy, rather than just having one feed for all podcasts. There's three different podcasts aimed at three different audiences and three different feeds. You can subscribe to one. There's also an everything feed if you want to get all three of them, and. Uh, In the first 14 days uh, since this was launched, there were 2,000 feed subscribers. That's really significant for a company like this. And this is a a really exciting case study. This is an organization, uh, it's a client of ours called APM Music. They are a division of EMI and BMG Music Publishing, which is uh, two of the the three largest uh, music publishers in the world. And in the, in the standard business of public relations, as an agency representing a company like this, uh, it used to be that our job was to get them press, to get them mentioned in Billboard, to get them mentioned in The Hollywood Reporter. And now what we find is we're actually making the media ourselves, and we're partnering with them. And I'll, give you an, I'll tell you what happened. Uh, we launched a podcast uh, for APM called The Film and TV Music Podcast. Uh, The company is the largest licensor of music for use in film and television. And so we thought, well, why don't we start using that music in a podcast and talking to the composers and the different music supervisors who decide what music will get used in different uh, television shows and and films. And uh, we did, and and over a short period of time, we built up an audience of around 20,000. And once we had that audience in place, uh, we saw that uh, the Hollywood Reporter in Billboard, two media outlets that we had always gone like poppers in the past, too, to get them to cover our news, had a conference uh, focusing on the business of film and TV music. So we went to them and we said, well, hey, we've got a podcast that reaches 20,000 people. Why don't we do a deal where we'll be the official podcast of the conference. We'll do interviews with the very speakers there. Why don't you give us your executive editor from Billboard and they'll do the interviews. We'll do the research. It'll, it'll take minimal time. We'll provide the, um, the, uh, the audio producer and the editing, and, and we'll build the podcast center, everything you need. And, uh, and that's, that's what we did. And, and what they did is this, as you can see, HollywoodReporter.com. they actually added a link on their website to the Conference Music Podcast. And if you click on that, you're taken to the APM Film and TV Music Podcast site. So now we've actually partnered with a media outlet We're creating media as a corporation that they think is interesting to their audience. So they're partnering with us. They're sending traffic in our direction. And we're actually playing at their level. And this is a great podcast. I'd like to play you a little clip.
2: You're listening to the Film and TV Music Podcast, sponsored by APM, the premier source for production
0: music services.
2: Thank you for downloading this episode of APM Film and TV Music Podcast, the official podcast of the Hollywood Reporter Billboard Film and TV Music Conference. This podcast takes you inside the business of music for picture. We focus on the production and licensing of music through in depth one on one interviews with composers, music supervisors, and industry insiders. My name is Tamara Conniff. I'm the executive editor and associate publisher of Billboard, and it's my pleasure to guest host this special episode of the APM Film and TV Music Podcast, recorded in Beverly Hills, California. Today we have British Academy Award winner Jesper Kid who's done countless scores for games. He's actually currently scoring next generation titles for EDIOS and Ubisoft. He most recently released project, the stylish music score for Hitman Blood Money, which is nominated for best video game score at the 2006 MTV Music
1: Video Awards. Right now I'm scoring a two hour score for a for next generation game, and that's that's considered a lot in this industry. Usually the scores are about 60 to 90 minutes.
2: If you would like to subscribe to this podcast, you can download it at www.productionmusicpodcast.com. It's free to subscribe. You can subscribe with iTunes, Yahoo Podcasts, and other popular pod catchers.
0: If
2: you have any questions or comments, please let us know by emailing us your suggestions for future guests and what we can do to improve this podcast to podcasts at apmmusic.com. Actually, what I think people would be interested in hearing, which I thought was really fascinating to me, was talking about how different it is to score for games as opposed to film or music.
1: So I want to point out a few things about format here. If you're, if you're really serious about, about podcasting, some notes I want you to take away from this. It's really counterintuitive, the notion of branding in a podcast, right? We don't call this the APM podcast, we call it the Film and TV Music Podcast. If we called it the APM Film and TV Music Podcast officially, if that was the official title, when people were looking through iTunes or looking through Yahoo, they're going to look at us and they're going to say, this is just a corporate marketing podcast. There's no real meat here on the bone. This isn't a, a, a real podcast with real information. And it is. So what we've done is we've positioned APM as the sponsor. Remember you heard in the opening, this is the film and TV music podcast sponsored by APM? Very conscious, uh, very um, deliberate distinction that we made there because we want uh, to create a credible media outlet and create an advertising opportunity or a sponsorship opportunity for the client without making it seem as though the client is driving the content. Um, The other thing uh, I want to point out to you with respect to the talent you know we got really lucky there with the executive editor Tamara Conniff of billboard um, she actually didn't host all the episodes because we couldn't get her the whole time we also got some other uh, journalists from billboard to host some of the other episodes and i'll tell you a good print reporter does not necessarily make good on-air talent and we learned that the hard way um, it's really important that you get a personality that is likable and is going to be able to Drive a, a, a conversation in a way that's interesting. If you take a look at some of the top uh, uh, broadcasters, TV and radio, pretty much in any market, that's a really good benchmark for likability. Typically, um, you know, in, in the US, uh, we have a, a female broadcaster by the name of Katie Couric, who's often referred to as America's sweetheart. She's very likable. And it's very important that whatever talent you select. Uh, to lead your podcast be likable. Um, The other thing I want to mention to you is, you notice how in the intro to the podcast we said, if you have questions or comments or feedback, send them to us. We're trying to involve the community. Rather than have it just be a one-way podcast where we're talking at the audience, we're trying to create a, a community of listeners who are going to send us in comments. And that actually happens from time to time. We'll get an audio comment sent in from a listener, and we'll play it in the show. Um, or we'll get suggestions or comments or feedback via email. Um, I, there was a gentleman at the break who asked me, how do you know who's listening? You know, how, do you, how do you get a feel for demographics? One of the things that some podcasters will do is they'll set up on SurveyMonkey a listener response survey. And uh, over a course of maybe a couple months, the beginning of our podcast, they'll say, hey, if you enjoy the podcast, please go to our blog, take the survey, let us know what you think. And then you have some hard numerical data, some quantitative data that you can take to management about your listenership. Um, The truth is, uh, I think a lot of people, I mean, you're really, if you go that route, You're really banking on the fact that people are going to go through and give you accurate information. I know a lot of us probably get free magazines where you have to fill out that little card, and you just sort of go through and check everything real quick because you don't want to take the time. You just want to get the magazine. Um, Really, the only thing you know for sure about your listenership in a podcast is that they're interested in what you have to say. So the notion of psychographics uh, overcomes the notion of demographics. Rather than being interested in defining your audience by their gender, or by their race, or by their age, or by their uh, some sort of other physical demographic, all you really know is your, your, your audience's interest. And that's almost more powerful, because you know that if they're downloading the show, they must be interested. It's certainly a lot easier to flip on the television or the radio and consume entertainment that way. I mean, if you want a podcast, you've got to boot up your computer. You've got to connect to the Internet. You've got to set it to refresh. I mean, it takes some effort. So you know that the audience that's opting in is an audience that's genuinely interested in what you have to say. So, again, we come back to this notion of marketer as media, right? In this case, rather than us trying to get placements in the Hollywood Reporter and the billboard, we became a media outlet alongside the Hollywood Reporter and the billboard. Co-branded, links from their sites directly over to us. We're not uh, uh, shoved into some sort of advertising area. As we know, people don't trust ads. We're actually contributing to the editorial content. What a great opportunity. And I think this is a great opportunity for pretty much any business communicator that's looking to uh, get out through a niche audience. If you can partner with the outlets uh, that that are looking to um, extend their reach and their sphere of influence with electronic media, this is a great opportunity. The other thing is there's a lot of research out there that says that uh, Print publishers are all looking to add electronic media to their websites right now because they realize that they're going to get more people on their websites if they have electronic media. But most of them don't have the staff to create that media. So if you can find a way to create that media and partner with them, it's really a great opportunity to communicate with, with their audience. So let's talk a little bit about uh, podcast development and planning. What goes into making a podcast? Well, the first thing you have to do is select the subject matter. Now, a- as we said, it's a significant investment of time. You're looking, I think, once you get dialed in and overcome the technical hurdles, you're looking at probably eight hours of podcast. So what are you going to podcast about? I think the first thing to ask yourself, is, as we said, what expertise do you have that's not getting out there through other means? If your CEO or your spokesperson is giving a presentation for someone, can you put a recorder under them and, pass, and, and, and podcast it? If you're getting one of your executives together to speak on a panel at some sort of forum or a professional conference, can you record that panel presentation and offer that as a podcast? It's going to be easier if you can find something already going on in the organization, record that, and then offer it as a podcast. I mean, in many cases, things that happen at conferences like this, well, this will stay in this room and it will be forgotten. You'll walk away with the knowledge you have. But if you can record that, you are Getting information out there and brand expertise out there that's not avail- available by some other means—it's exclusive. You'll find now if you if you if you look for it, you'll find a lot of organizations now starting to do that, and there's all sorts of wonderful, uh, excellent content that's available for you to download. You can listen to all sorts of panel presentations from professional conferences and seminars that are being ma- made available through podcasts. A lot of us have inside of our organizations certain subject matter experts. And every now and then, you might be in the room with that person, hear that person talk about what they know because someone asks a question to them. And it's really it's fascinating when someone has that depth of knowledge to hear it. But in most cases, unless you get that person on the phone, unless they'll talk to you directly, there's no way to share that expertise with a wider audience. So why not record what they have to say and make that available as a podcast? Um, so selecting your subject matter, try to find something that's going to be easy. Try to find something that's already going on that you can record and make that available. If there's nothing going on that you can record and make available and you're going to do an original show, an interview is the easiest thing to do. It's much tougher to talk for, you know, two hours or even 45 minutes or a half hour yourself. Um, get experts who might be interesting to your audience and, and do one-on-one interviews with them or panel discussions with them and make that available uh, as a podcast. Um, if you want to be more ambitious and do a show where you're talking about item uh, news items of interest, uh, relevant news items of the day, uh, expect to spend a lot more time prepping for it and expect to uh, get on-air talent that's really going to be able to uh, keep it interesting for that period of time. Um, you're also going to need to figure out how to find your voice. You know, and, and it's important to match the voice to the audience. And we heard a few examples here, OK? We heard the LA opera. And the idea with the LA opera, as we said, is to cultivate tomorrow's generation of opera aficionados. So we want to talk to them in a way that they'll feel smart, and they'll feel like they're getting educated and cultured by, by listening to this. That's the voice we're using. Um, When we're talking to the uh, uh, people who use Trend Microsoftware, we're trying to talk upbeat and get them excited about what we have to say. Uh, When we're talking about the the, uh, film and TV music business, we're talking more casual, more relaxed. That's sort of the way things are in the entertainment business. And uh, when I'm doing my podcast about uh, the business of PR and I'm interviewing journalists, I do it in a journalistic style because that's a style that we're all familiar with. It's what we all do.